Here's uh, what the word says in Romans 5, 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The title of the message today is The Road to Hope. I'm going to make this real easy for you because I know you may be having a bit of a... Um, Sugar, you know, you've eaten so many uh, Christmas cookies and um, other sugary treats that you're kind of in a coma, maybe. And uh, so I'm going to try and keep it real easy for you. I'm going to give you the title and the outline and everything. That way, if you need to punch out, catch a quick nap, no, no harm, no foul. Uh, so the road to hope, we're going to look first at the first five verses of Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 5. The road to hope starts with an open door. And then verses 6 through 11, the road to hope brings us home uh, to God. So let's start in verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 5. The road to hope starts with an open door. If you've ever had to look for a job, you recognize this, that you can be qualified for a job, you can have a great resume, you can have great references, and when you submit that job application or that resume with a cover letter into an employer, it's going to go in and land on a stack of 100 others. And you're trying to figure out, in applying for this job, how to differentiate yourself uh, over and against all the other applicants. And everyone who has ever applied for a job knows the single greatest way to differentiate your application from others is to know somebody. Uh, have a, a buddy that works there that will go to the hiring manager and mention, hey, you're going to want to look at, at, this, at my buddy's resume because I think he could really do the job well. It, you're, you're, all your qualifications could be the same, but now you're going to be on, on a, different, a different track. And uh, right, wrong, or indifferent, the fact is, oftentimes it's not what you know it is. It's who you know. And this is, everybody knows this is true. We're not saying if it ought to be that way, but that's the way it is. So you've uh, got to learn to deal with it. Well, that's exactly what we're going to see in the scripture this morning. The road to hope starts with an open door, and of course we know this door is, is Jesus. Now, we need to define some terms. We're going to talk about hope a lot this morning. Hope occurs three times, verse 2, verse 4, and verse 5. But we really need to understand biblical hope is not the same as hope that we know in our world today. Hope, uh, the way we generally define it in our culture, is, is uh, it's a, uh, another word for a wish, 
I hope things go well at work. We might even say, I wish things go well. We, we hope that things are going to go a certain way, that things are going to go the way we want. And, and really, we're using that word the same way that we, we would use the word wish. Uh, biblical hope is not used that way. Biblical hope is an understanding of something that is going to come to pass that is certain, and it provides us an anchor to navigate through what is today. So on Friday, you know you're going to get off work and go home. And so you say, my hope is, my hope is founded on, on Friday, I don't, I can punch out for the weekend. It's not a wish, you know, every Friday you get off work and you get the weekend off. Uh, most Fridays, right? Okay, so sometimes it is a wish. Um, but, but hope in the biblical sense is something that is certain to occur, which provides us strength to get through what is occurring today. What we re- when you're reading your scripture, I would say universally so, when you read the word hope, it is not wish. So we don't have a wish that maybe Christ will someday come back. No, he's coming back. And hope in the Bible is a certainty. We're just merely waiting for it to occur. That is where our hope lies uh, versus other false hopes. That's why the Bible even says uh, hope isn't really going to be needed in heaven. Because once we are with God, we no longer need hope. We have him in uh, person. So the road to hope starts with an open door. And let's look at the first two verses. Therefore, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So hope uh, in God starts with experiencing grace through faith in Jesus alone. If you want to know uh, what that means, we're going to talk about it just briefly, but we've uh, spent the last three months going through Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4. You're going to have to go listen to all those messages again because it's been building up to this chapter. So the, we have hope that we have been made right, meaning our, uh, our evil deeds have been washed away by the blood of Christ, and we have been granted Christ's righteousness when we trust that what Jesus did on the cross provides forgiveness for those sins. We have to believe Jesus overcomes our sin through the cross and his resurrection. So we hope in God starts when we trust Jesus for uh, forgiveness. It means we have to, of course, admit that we need forgiveness, which is one of the most difficult parts of that. Secondly, we have to agree and believe that what Jesus did on the cross provides what is needed to erase that guilt and shame and provide us righteousness. So he says, therefore, since we've been justified, made righteous, we have peace with God. So it's a, it's a state of being. What is the definition of your relationship with God in Christ? Peace. When you interact with God, it is defined by Peace. It's the definition, one of the defining characteristics of your relationship with God. We'll get to this in in a minute, but do you feel at peace with God? See, that's a different question, isn't it? Because sometimes you might do something you wish you hadn't have done, and so you assume God is angry. God should be angry, but if the cross is true, the, our, our, our relationship with God is no longer defined by our behavior, it's defined by Christ's behavior, so our relationship with God is defined as one of peace. That's hard to get our heads around because we feel like, no, he should be mad at me. Uh, He should be, but that wrath, that anger went on to the cross. So our relationship with God is one of peace when we put our faith in Christ 
for salvation. Look at verse 2. Through him, who's the him? That's Jesus. We have access by faith. So here's where you talk about the road to hope starts with an open door. But pay attention to what we have access to in this verse. Look at it. We have access to what? You're into his grace. Somebody said it. We tend to think it's always access into the presence of God. And that's true. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. It's quite clear because of the grace of Christ, we have access into the presence of God. But in this verse, the point he's making, we have access into his grace. Because of the work of Christ, the door is open for us to jump into the pool of grace. The door is open. Come on in. The water's great. So we have access by our faith in Christ because his spirit draws us to him into his grace. And that's where we find our standing. We stand in the grace of Christ. We're in the grace of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. So the result of entering into the door of Christ by faith is we, our existence is defined by standing in the, the grace of God. That's, that's the definition of our existence. Peace with God because of the grace of God. The aim of our faith is to experience the grace of God, which of course results in a peace of God in our life in terms of our relationship. And so therefore God is glorified in all that. So we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So there's that first mentioning of, of where that hope come from. We put our faith in Christ, we walk into the doorway of Christ, and we experience God's grace. And because we experience God's grace, our relationship with God is, by, de by definition, a relationship at peace. All of these things are necessary because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God. If it wasn't for grace, none of this could happen. If Jesus hadn't died on the cross and been raised from the dead, we couldn't rightly experience God's grace. So we enter into God's grace. And that's the definition of our relationship with God. So the, why is this important? Some of us are thinking, when we think through how we got saved, we have the grace of God, and then we go through the grace of God as the doorway, so then we live our life with God. So grace is the doorway. It's not. What's the doorway? Jesus, and where are we going? Into grace. Christians, a lot of times, I don't know, I don't know why we do this, because in our hearts, we really, really want to earn our way to heaven. We want to get saved by grace and live by works. But the way he's outlining it here, it's we enter into Christ into grace. That's where the, that's the destination is grace. So the definition of our Christian life is one lived in grace. You don't need grace, though, if you're one of those Christians who never do anything wrong, right? But you're here in church on a Sunday morning the weekend after Christmas, which means you must have done something wrong. You're feeling terrible guilty. So I better get down to church, get cleaned up. I'm kidding. That's a terrible thing to say. Uh, it's probably true, but it's still a terrible thing to say. We're not supposed to say these things out loud. So we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So again, I know there's a lot going on here, uh, but it's fun. I, I enjoy it, whether or not you do or not. Okay, so here's the thing. Again, we tend to think about our relationship with God, especially in terms of our relationship with our parents. So sometimes we would do something wrong and our parents wouldn't punish us. Did you ever experience that? Yeah, maybe so. And mostly it's usually because the parent is just too tired. It has nothing to do with your well-being. It's just, I'm too exhausted. Don't do that again, right? Just, I'm exhausted, right? But you know the parent is, is mad. So the, the parent has offered you some sense of grace, but it's begrudgingly. 
Okay, yeah, I just don't have the energy right now to, to navigate through some kind of disciplinary process to make you a better person. I'm just going to, okay, you got away with it. Don't do it again, but I'm going to be mad for a while just to kind of get my pound of flesh, right? This is what's interesting is God isn't that way. And we might think he is. He, sure, Jesus died on the cross, and sure, he gives us his grace, but certainly at some point he's going to smack us upside the head. Look what happens in relationship to God when all this has happened. We stand in grace and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So God making way for us to access his grace actually brings him glory. He is magnified. He is made uh, famous. He is seen as who he really is in his graciousness to us. He takes great delight in showing grace to us because that's his nature. He's not a begrudging parent. He's like, oh, you got away with it. He's God who is glorified to provide us access to his grace by his son. It doesn't mean he's okay with our sin, but he is glorified to provide all the grace that is necessary for our sin. So through Jesus, we walk through the doorway of his uh, grace and enter into his grace, and God is greatly glorified in that. Okay, so that maybe this week, you blew it this week. Maybe. Not this group. Probably second service. You did something you really regret and you hope nobody finds out about, okay? And so you've done the appropriate thing. You've gone to God and you've asked for forgiveness and he offers you his, uh, his grace and uh, his forgiveness. And now you feel this sense uh, that you need to sort of feel bad about it for a while, right? Why is that? Because now you want to contribute to your forgiveness? I understand that. Well, I mean, I do understand it, but that's not what the Bible says. His grace is poured out, and now that is by definition what our life is, a life of continually experience the grace of God more and more. Now, the religious legalist inside of us says, if you give people grace, they will sin a lot more, but that means you've never read your Bible. Actually, the grace of Christ is transformative. When we experience the depths of Christ's grace, it actually moves us by his spirit to say no to sin. And in fact, a, a strict relegation of rules and obligations to make God happy, in my experience, and I think I could defend it biblically, makes people sin more. If you want to overcome sin, one of the primary ways you need to do that is to experience the overwhelming power of God's grace. So this week when you blew it and God's grace was there for you again, he was glorified and he was delighted in it and his spirit is going to use that to trans, uh, transform you. Okay, uh, let's look at what this road of grace looks like. This is the part where you're going to be terribly disappointed. The doorway of hope into grace starts a journey of change in us. And this is verses 3 and 4. We hope in the glory of God and not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. I'm sorry? That's what when you read that, I'm, uh, when, when are we going to start doing that, right? Uh, you lost me. Watch how it works. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We hope in the glory of God by his grace. So now what God is going to do by his grace is move us down the road on a journey of experiencing hope in him more and more and more and more. And the means by which God is going to give us hope is to change us. He wants to transform us so we can better experience his hope. And what are the 
three, three of the basic steps that he does that. What does that journey of grace looks like? It starts with suffering. So he takes us through difficult times, and that difficulty provides us in him strength to endure greater and greater difficulties. As a result of that greater endurance in Christ, character is developed in us. And character is just Christ-likeness through and through, enduring through suffering as we rest in the Lord through prayer and hanging in there and seeking others for help and resting in His grace. Over time, our, our, we are developed into someone who looks more and more like Jesus, which means in difficulty, we rest in the Lord more and more. And that character produces hope. So we think we have hope when we escape suffering. Something bad is happening. I hope it ends soon. Have you ever said that? I hope this ends soon. That's an appropriate thing to hope. However, the hope we find in suffering in the scripture is our character is developed to such a degree that the suffering, maybe it never changes, and we find in Christ, we find hope even in that suffering. That's the journey of grace. Now, this is the point where many people want off the train, but this is the way, this is the way it goes. This is why Christians need, we need to have a good understanding of the role of suffering in our lives. The Holy Spirit and is going to use the Word of God in our suffering to make us like Jesus. Many of us want to be made into like Jesus by going to a home Bible study or an adult Bible class or, or are doing our devotions, and that's a part of it. But what that does is provide us the fodder, so to speak, that we're going to carry with us into suffering. So you read your Bible, you study your Bible, you go to a Bible study, you listen to sermons online, you come to church, so you're loading up the ammo, so to speak, and now you go, what am I going to do to become like Jesus? Take all of that equipment and go into suffering and see what happens. And then we get formed into the image of Christ, and it turns out when we get shaped into Jesus' image, in the midst of suffering, we find hope. I can't tell if you believe me or not. Well, thankfully, it's just the Bible. You just can't deal with it. We're convinced hope happens when suffering ends. The Bible tells us hope happens when we become like Jesus in suffering. Yeah, I know you don't like it. I don't like it any better than you do. Because we want suffering to end. We want everything to be fine. God will take us through what we need to go through. So we're made like Jesus. Hope comes from the change that God brings out in our heart by the power of his Holy Spirit in his word, in suffering, in endurance, in developing character, that produces hope in us. So the doorway, of, uh, the doorway to hope is Christ that leads us into God's grace, and God gives us the grace of making us into the image of Jesus, transforming us to be like Jesus through what? Now, nobody wants to say that one, yeah, through suffering. So we should say it this way, suffering is a form of God's grace to us because he uses it to make us like Christ. Now, again, oftentimes we think grace is only defined as God extending to us his favor in Christ to forgive us of our sins. That is grace. It is also God's grace to make us like Jesus through suffering. Does God have to make you like Jesus? Only because he said he is going to does he have to, but he is only obligated by his own nature. He is making us like Jesus as an expression of his grace, and one of the primary ways he does that for us is through suffering. 
So the road to hope starts with an open door, which is Jesus, leads us into the grace of God, which is expressed. One of the ways it's expressed is suffering, which produces in us the character of Christ, which gives us great hope. Okay, let's read verse 5 of Romans 5. Hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what we have to understand here is God is not just being mean. He's not just going to try and take us through really hard times to make us like Jesus just because he's, he's kind of had a bad weekend. He's doing this because he wants us to experience the overwhelming depths of his love. Look what it says about his love. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So this pouring, is, in, is it's a poetic way of saying this. Isn't it? Don't you get the image of a pitcher? It's being poured out. And really the imagery here is supposed to indicate that it's overflowing. It's, it, it never ends. The, the word of God or the love of God is to, to fill us up and it's poured out on us and it's sloshing out all over the place. So we didn't get a ration of God's love. You know, so a little uh, dry bis- biscuit of God's love. Here's God's love. It's a little bit stale. And when you're, when you've eaten all of that, you're out. So you might want to ration it. Save it for a, when you really blow it. That's not what it's, what he's saying is that he's pouring his love out into our hearts, an experience of God's love through the power of his Holy Spirit. This is what's funny about this. He's saying, we enter into his grace, which leads us into suffering. And in that development, we experience the love of God. What, isn't it funny then when, a lot, when we enter into suffering, what's the first thing we sometimes question? We, we question God's love. Isn't that funny? The biblical uh, sort of form here is we experience God's love most profoundly when we get shaped into the image of Christ and that hope is filling us and his love is poured out on us. But, but oftentimes we, get, we hit something really, really hard and we say, God, why don't you love me? What would I do? And, and it, it's, it's counterintuitive, but when we become like Christ, we experience God's love even more and even more deeply. So the hope we have in God is that we would experience a relational connection with God defined by his love and grace. Verse 5, hope does not put us to shame. We have no concern that whether or not God's going to keep his end of the deal on this. God is going to keep his end of the deal. We will experience his love and grace God's love is going to be poured out into us. Our job by God's strength in the midst of suffering is to endure and have him use that suffering and that endurance, even even the grace of endurance that he gives us, shapes us to be like Christ and we we experience more and more of God's love poured into our heart. What's God's mission? It's to love us and to form us into a being like him for his glory, that we might experience his love more and more and more. God is pouring his love out into us constantly. That's what he does. But we miss it because of our rebellion, and we don't trust him, and we we think he's up to something. The way we experience God's love to the greatest degree is to be like Christ. And how do we become like Christ? Through the grace of suffering. So grace is not just for our conversion, that moment where we We accept the Lord and become Christians. God's grace is for every moment of the Christian life, from the moment you are saved to the moment you step into God's presence. The journey of hope is a journey in God's grace, a moment-by-moment experience of God's grace. 
Sometimes that grace is forgiveness. It's, it's God washing away our sin anew again this morning. Others times that grace is going to be walking through suffering that leads to endurance so we can experience the hope that comes from the love of God. Okay, so that was verses 1 through 5. Are we good? All right, let's do it all again. You look confused. Now you can listen to it online. All right, the road to hope starts with an open door. Secondly, the road to hope brings us, brings us home to God. The door of hope in Jesus is specific. The destination is God. We walk into the door of hope by the grace of Christ into God's grace, and the destination is God. I don't know what you want to get out of your Christian life. But what the Bible is offering in relationship with God through Jesus Christ is God. Uh, it's not uh, being healthy all the time. I would like to be healthy all the time, but it, it's, that's not what we're, we're not following God so we never get sick. We're not following God so he would bless our finances, although he does do that. Uh, we're not following God uh, so that we might have worldly power and influence, uh, although there, sometimes he does that. The purpose of the uh, grace of Christ is that we might know God. God is the destination. He's the aim. He's the goal. Why do we want to go to heaven? That's where God is, so to speak. That's where we experience the presence of God. If you want to go to heaven and you're not interested in being with God, heaven will be lame because that's all heaven is about is being with God. And, and, and so we have to remind ourselves what the goal of our Christian life is to be with God. That's the goal. So the road to hope brings us home to God. And we understand that when we go on a trip, uh, we plan out the destination generally. Maybe uh, you're at that time of life where you can just get in the car and drive around and see where you end up. But usually when you go on a trip, you say, you know what, we're going to go to, uh, well, I should say this, back when we went on trips, um, Maybe someday we will go on trips again. But you say, you know, here's where we're going to go, and here's why we're going to go. We're going to drive down to Southern California because we want to get in the warmth, and we, we want to relax a little bit and have a time of rest and leisure and relaxation. Or you might get onto an airplane and fly to New York, and the purpose of uh, flying to New York is you have some business meetings to attend to. So you have a destination and a purpose for why you're going there. So we're on the road to hope, and our destination is God. And the purpose is to experience the presence of God because once we do that, we won't want to be uh, anywhere else. Why would we want to hang out with God? Why would we want to hang out with God? Think of the people you enjoy being with. Maybe uh, uh, your husband or your wife, your good friends that you hang out. Why do you like being around them? You might say a number of things. Well, they, they understand me. We have good conversations. Uh, uh, we have some things we do that are, that are enjoyable. We have some shared hobbies. We like getting together, play games, playing golf. We like to uh, travel together, whatever it might be. There are things that uh, in any relationship that draw you to that other person. What would draw us to want to hang out with God? What would in, in your heart say, you know what? I'm really motivated to spend the day with God. Now, what's interesting about most believers, especially when I talk to them, this would include you guys, but I'm not going to throw you on the, under the bus. We're, of course, always talking about second service. When you think about what God is like, you have no interest in hanging out with him. He seems grumpy. He's always smiting somebody. I mean, he's forever smiting. It seems like it's the only thing he does really well. And certainly when I'm praying to him, I don't think he's listening. He obviously has other things on his mind. Certainly when I come into his presence, I'm just reminded of all the ways I've let him down. Certainly he's 
He's terribly disappointed with me. Now, why would you want to spend some time with somebody that you were convinced is disappointed in you, is going to look for an opportunity to smite you, and never pays attention to anything you're saying? Would you really want to spend time with that person? If that was a friend of yours, would you call them up this weekend and ask to go hang out? No. Not unless their spouse called you up. Please take them out. I need a break. That, you, okay, for charity, I'll go. I'll take your, your, your husband out for the weekend, whatever it might be. Why would we want, when you think about what you think about God, is that the kind of person you'd want to hang out with? And the, and the reason it's not is not because God is not worth hanging out with. It's because who God is is misdefined in our minds. If, if we define who he is biblically, we wouldn't want to hang out with anybody else. So let's look at verses 6 through 11. What is God like? Verses 6 through 11 is merely trying to convince us by faith that God is worth hanging out and you wouldn't want to hang out anywhere else. What kind of guy is God? While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? Ungodly. He died for the ungodly at the right time, meaning he's never late. And and I would also suggest that he died precisely when the night was darkest. We talked about this on Christmas Eve. We quoted this verse on Christmas Eve. So he came at the moment when he was most needed. And for whatever reason, that was 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross. So Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, Verse 7. For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Who knows what this means? Absolutely no one. Well, some people do. We have some really good guesses. Uh, He's using here a figure of speech that appears to be very localized. Okay? Why wouldn't somebody die for a righteous person? Are righteous people bad? Yeah, I've met some. Yeah, I wouldn't die for them either, right? He's making, so we know the point he's making. He's saying God died for the ungodly. Listen, maybe somebody would die for a religious person or a moral person. Maybe. The point he's making, who would die for an ungodly person? No one. This is the argument he's making. Precisely the, the, the idiom that he is using is a little bit hard to get our heads around, but we know the point he's making. You might die for a good person. You might die for a righteous person. You might die for a generous person, maybe, if, if, all, if everything made sense. Would you die for an ungodly person who doesn't care that you died for them? Well, no, why would I do that? Nobody would, would do that. That's, and that's his point. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we regularly quote that verse. That's probably a memory verse. Many of you learned in Awana or, uh, or a Bible study you maybe have done. And it's an important verse theologically to understand Jesus was motivated to die for us for his own purposes and glory. We didn't deserve it. But we have to understand the argument he's making, what he's trying to convince us is, This is the kind of God God is. The kind of God who loves you so much he would die for you, not when you finally showed good potential or not when you finally started getting your act together. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still on the other team, waving the other team's flag, we don't like God, he's a big meanie, always smiting people. That's when he died for us while we were still sinners. Running away from him, he dies to draw us near to him. And this is what God is like. He dies for people who don't deserve it. Ungodly. Those who are in active rebellion. Not people with potential. And he does so according to his timing, 
not according to ours. And God did this on purpose to show us his love. God died for us while we were sinners on purpose to communicate to us what kind of God he is. He is a God who is loving. He died for sinners. He didn't die for the righteous. Why didn't Jesus die for righteous people? There weren't any. That, that's just it. It, if he would have maybe died for the righteous people if there were any of them. But the Bible makes quite clear. Look in the book of Psalms. Look in the book of Isaiah. There are none righteous. No, not one. There are none who seek after God. His love is extended to sinners, rebellious sinners via his sacrifice. Jesus died on the cross for the people mocking him on the cross. Look at verse 9. Since, therefore, we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, uh, saved by him from the wrath of God. So he's transitioning now into that road of hope. So since we have been justified by his blood, we put our faith in Christ, we are justified by his blood, our sin is washed away, and we are credited with Christ's righteousness. In Christ, how righteous are we? As righteous as Jesus is righteous. And so if Jesus is able to make us as righteous as he is, is he able to save us from God's wrath on our journey down the road of grace? Okay, so when you wake up this morning, you realize yesterday uh, you were a little tired, post-Christmas blues, all that yada, 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 and you popped off at somebody and said something you shouldn't have said. Or worse yet, you're still saying, no, I should have said it, I just shouldn't have been that angry. But they needed to hear it. Why is that finger coming out? Generally is. Good way of knowing I'm wrong about something, right? So obviously God is mad at me because I would sin having been made righteous. I mean, sure, it's one thing for a sinner to sin. I've been made righteous and I'm sinning. Oh, God must really be mad at me. Look at, look at what it says. Since he's justified you by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from God's wrath? If he can save us by his, by his blood, can he satisfy God's wrath? Yes. So when you woke up this morning, how mad was God at you? Zero. He would be, it would be an injustice for God to express any kind of wrath on someone who has put their faith in Christ because the wrath of God went on Jesus. If God is mad at you, he is not God as defined by the Bible. As the Bible says, God is just and he will never punish sin twice. If your sin was punished in Jesus, he cannot be mad at you according to his own nature. Look at verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now, what's now? This journey of grace in Christ, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Can God get you from here to heaven safely? Yes, that is where our hope is. Is he going to do it simply because he wants you to be drawn to the kind of God he is? Loving and gracious, wrath is satisfied on Jesus, his son. If you're justified by his blood, don't you think he will finish, you, finish the job and save us from uh, the Lord's anger? And the answer is yes. God is able to get us from here to heaven in the glory of God because he wants us moved by what God is like. Gracious and loving and faithful to us because of the work of Jesus. God is faithful to finish the job. Last verse, verse 11. 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the goal. Walk through the door, walk through the door into grace by Christ. Walk down that journey of grace, which includes suffering and endurance, being made into the image of Jesus. Experience the love of God to a degree we never have before because we understand what God is like. And then we are moved to worship. Verse 11, we also what? Rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So on this journey of grace, in the midst of suffering, endurance, and character, and being made like Jesus, we are moved to rejoice because God is that good. So this is where we can diagnose. When our hearts are not filled with rejoicing, and that happens, we're frail, we're weak, but we recognize we're missing something about what God is like when the rejoicing is gone. Because if we could see with eyes of faith what God is like and what he's up to, we'd go, oh man, this is fantastic. And you say, well, I've never been in suffering and rejoiced, but I don't think that's true for you guys. I know that you know what that's like. I know that we, all of us in the journey of Christ have been on roads of suffering where it hasn't been rejoicing. It's just been, uh, God, we're going to have words. But I know we've, you've had this experience where you're in the midst of some of the most difficult things in your life and somehow you're moved to just joy that God is faithful in it. And, and that's what this is describing. Where we say, oh, it's, it may never get better, but if I can find God in this, I will rejoice in this. That's not easy to do, but that's the, de- that's the destination to be so filled with the love of God that in the midst of those difficult times, We rejoice because he is the one who gives us reconciliation. Okay, uh, three quick things, and then um, we're going to close with a song. There's two ways that we experience hope. Number one is we we have hope because we recognize that help has arrived in Christ. We have hope because help has arrived in Christ. If you're not a believer, this gives you hope because you're going to realize you can receive forgiveness for all your sins. If you are a believer, you can come to the understanding through his word here that you can finally let go of all that guilt and shame. You don't need to carry it. It's done. He wasn't kidding when he said it is finished. There is absolutely no need for a Christian to carry around guilt and shame. There is perfectly appropriate times for the Holy Spirit to convict us and say, what am I doing? This is wrong. But to carry around guilt and shame does not make any sense. We have hope in Christ because his job is finished to bring us Grace. So that's one way we have hope. The second way we have hope is to experience God's grace as he takes us down a, down a path to give us greater endurance. And I know you may not believe it, but I, this is what the Bible says. We experience hope more and more when we endure through suffering in Christ. And, I, and my guess would be, you know what that is, what I'm talking about. You've experienced that. You don't like it any more than I do, but you've experienced it is when we go down the road of suffering and God shapes us into the image of Christ, somehow along that journey, we actually experience God's hope uh, to a a greater degree. Finally, this. Uh, God's love saves enemies, rebels, and sinners, and his love doesn't change. Uh, Even as a believer, if you know that your life is still marked by sin and rebellion, if you don't know if your life is marked by sin and rebellion, let me in, I'll let you in on a secret. It is. So we can be moved to rejoice in God, realizing that God loves rebels and sinners. He can do that without accepting our sin. 
In fact, it can even move us to say no to sin. If God is this gracious, why am I doing this stuff? God loves us even when the tainting and the frailty of sin is still characterizing our lives. And, and I would just ask you this question, because I know this is something all of us as believers struggle with. I find that uh, religious people struggle with this more uh, than non-religious people. Uh, can you trust God enough to recognize that he loves you today? So what the enemy tries to do is convince you that God's a jerk and he doesn't love you so that you won't rejoice. And what the Bible is trying to show you is God loves you even though sin still finds its place in your life. God still loves you and that you would even rejoice in that. Not rejoice in that you get to get away with sin. That's not the point. Rejoice that God loves someone like us. That should move us to joy. And we find our hope in that. Can God love us even though we still have the marks of sin in our life? And if the answer is yes, by God's grace, we can rejoice. The road to hope starts with an open door into God's grace, which is Jesus. And the road to hope brings us home. And that hope is God himself. 